The class today is a little bit ambitious. It's an attempt to kind of go through all of the various responses that have been um, suggested um, is ways to kind of bridge the gap between halakha and homosexuality, the existence of homosexuality in the 20th and 21st century. Um, I have personally been very disappointed by um, responses that I have heard in this arena. Um, what I hope that we get to by the end of today um, is an approach that we can feel good about um, as part of a larger picture of halakha in our lives, of observance in our lives, um, but also to help us feel good about you know, the Torah and about God. Um, so interrupt me at any point, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to lay this out as programmatically as possible. Um, when people talk about conflicts between halakha, or let's say even broadly, when people talk about conflicts between Judaism and homosexuality, they're usually talking about one of four things, perhaps all of those four things. One of those is a, a social problem. Why am I a queer Jew being discriminated against in my community? Why are my children being taken away from me? Um, why do my friends cease to talk to me or act strangely around me? That's a social problem. The second is a legal problem. How is it possible that the Torah and later texts say homosexuality, or sorry, let's be more specific, homosexual activities are sins in some way. The third is an institutional problem. Why is it that the fact that I am a queer Jew, why does that mean that I cannot go to a rabbinical school of my choice, or be a chazan in my community, or get an aliyah, or be some kind of leader? Um, why are there policies in Jewish institutions that discriminate against me? And the last one is theological. How is it possible that God could have this Torah and that the Torah discriminates against queerness in some ways? These are four very large questions. And I think one of the reasons that we end up unsatisfied with the answers that we hear about how to you know, reconcile Judaism and homosexuality is because the answers respond to some of these questions but do not respond to all of these questions. And so today I'm going to try to go from answers that I find less satisfying to answers that I find more satisfying. The answer at the end is, is my own personal answer. Um, so <laughs> that is presumably the one that I find most satisfying. Um, I hope you do as well, but you don't have to. Um, also before we start, I just want to make a, a note of what does it mean to have a conflict? Or like, what are we talking about when we say there's a conflict between Judaism and homosexuality? We're talking about two things. One thing is to say that there exists in Judaism an idea that speaks against homosexual sex or homosexual activity or homosexual lifestyles. The second is a little bit more subtle, but ultimately I think will stay with us for a longer period of time, which is not the Torah or Judaism says something against homosexuality, but the, the Torah says nothing at all to homosexuals. That the Torah is entirely blank and speaks towards heterosexuals and heterosexual activity and heteronormative behaviors, but says nothing at all that is in any way relevant to um, homosexuals. And that, I think, is a more difficult problem. How is it possible that there can be a tradition which does not speak to a significant percentage of um, 
of its affiliates, of its followers. Okay, let's just start out. So how do we how do we approach this? And I've given you on the sources because I don't think I need to give you all the sources for this class, but some of the, the key texts which you may have seen before that um, kind of lay out in no uncertain terms um, restrictions on homosexual sex. So in Leviticus, in Vayikra, that Zachar lo tishkav isha toivahi, so it is an abomination of some kind for a man to lie with another man. We can talk about exactly what does lie with another man mean. Fine. And then again, that ish asher yishkav et zachar mishkavei isha toiva asush nehem mot yumatu dmehem ba. Great. Um, I added the third source, 3a and 3b, to, just to say that the, um, the prohibition on lesbian activity is not biblical, um, but is read into the biblical text later on by rabbinic sources. Um, so some, some scholars pick up on this, some do not. Um, the approach we're looking towards, I think, speaks to men and women equally. Okay, great. So if we were thinking about what does it mean to reconcile Judaism and homosexuality, we have to start out with the question about, well, what do we understand homosexuality to be? Or do we even understand homosexuality to exist um, as such, as opposed to being a deviation from heterosexual behavior slash normal behavior? Um, so one approach to this is to say, point blank, that the Torah prohibits homosexual identification. Not homosexual activity, homosexual identification. Um, as far as I can tell, this is not an approach taken by anybody in the, in the Jewish tradition. Um, there is no inherent problem with saying, like, I am a queer Jew. Um, the problems crop up when we are thinking instead about homosexual activity. So just to start us off, we're, we're talking about activities as opposed to identification, but identification ends up mattering in terms of how we um, treat this issue. Great. So assuming we're talking about um, we're talking about activities and not simply identification, one approach to take is to say the tendencies, homosexual uh, tendencies, can be altered in some way. Um, this is an approach taken by some groups. You might know the organization Jonah, mm -hmm. um, therapeutic <coughs> treatments of various kinds. Um, so if you uh, consider homosexual um, tendencies to be pathological in some way, that is, heterosexual behavior is the norm, homosexual activity is simply um, a product, is a, kind of, right, is a kind of mental illness or is a kind of disease, then presumably um, you're not going to move very far to make halakha agree with that. Um, the most you will get, and you do get this in organizations like Jonah, is statements to the effect of, we have to be considerate our brothers and sisters are sick, and they need, uh, you know, they need to be rehabilitated. In the meantime, we should be as kind to them as possible. So this, I think, at best, is a social answer. It doesn't provide anything more than that. Okay, and I think we can move on from that. Um, the second approach is to say that homosexual activities, homosexual tendencies, cannot be altered. To kind of, uh, and I think that's already uh, a relatively modern statement, but at the same time, to say that a heterosexual lifestyle is still the overarching norm, that's the default, that's what we're going for, and so it may be that there are homosexuals in our communities, and we don't believe for either biological or like just very deeply, um, deep-seated um, social reasons, we don't believe that there can be any changes, but nonetheless, um, they do not exist as a community. There is no, there is no uh, point in proudly saying like, 
there is a homosexual identity, and certainly about growing um, queer communities or queer families or anything like that. This is the approach that was taken, as far as I can tell, um, by the conservative movement around 1990, not nowadays, but in 1990. Um, and if you look at source number four in your source sheet, you kind of get the sense. Um, it says, whereas Judaism affirms that the divine image reflected by every human being must always be cherished and affirmed, whereas Jews have always been sensitive to, sorry, sorry about the telling, have been sensitive to the impact of official and unofficial prejudice and discrimination wherever directed, and whereas gay and lesbian Jews have experienced not only the, um, the constant threat of physical violence and homophobic rejection, but also the pains of anti-Semitism known to all Jews, and additionally, a sense of painful alienation from our own religious institutions, and whereas the extended families of gay and lesbian Jews are often members of our congregations who live with concerns for the safety, health, and well-being of their children, and whereas the AIDS crisis, okay, therefore be it resolved that we, the rabbinical assembly, while affirming our tradition's prescription for heterosexuality, support full civil equality for gays and lesbians in national life, deplore the violence against gays and lesbians in our society, and reiterate that, as are all, gay, as are all Jews, gay men and lesbians are welcome as members in our congregations, and call upon our synagogues in the arms of our movement to increase our awareness, understanding, and concern for all fellow Jews who are gay and lesbian. Okay. So this solution, it seems to me, is also a kind of social solution. Social solution. It is also a kind of institutional solution. Right? This is the conservative movement speaking. This is, this is our general policy. Um, and what is interesting, if you notice um, at the beginning of, of the statement, is the motivation for this position comes from Judaism affirms that the divine image reflected by every human being must always be cherished and affirmed. That is to say, we don't, uh, we don't approve of uh, homosexual lifestyles. Heteronormativity is the way to go. Nonetheless, um, we need to care for our fellow Jewish brother and brothers and sisters. Great. Well, when, when does this actually say anything reaffirming the idea that, that homosexuality is prohibited by Jewish tradition? So I think it's coming from that, that perspective, meaning um, it's coming from the perspective of we can't condone this behavior as being halakhically upset, uh, um, acceptable. It would say that if it did believe that. Um, nonetheless, on a social level, on an institutional level, um, there cannot be discrimination. Um, so the conservative movement doesn't hold this anymore, and we'll talk more about what the conservative movement does do nowadays. Um, but this is very similar um, to a statement that was recently given by um, an Orthodox Jew, Rabbi Nati Helfgott, um, and some other rabbis crafted a statement in 2010, um, which says, in, in longer terms, um, uh, something very similar. Um, and we're not going to read the whole thing now, but you can find this online, um, along with the names of a list of rabbis who have signed on to this as, as agreeing that this is a procedure which uh, Orthodox Jews and Orthodox institutions should follow, saying, among other things, that we think that kavod habriot, that is, um, having honor and respect for God's creations, is important in and of itself. And motivated by that, um, we have to work very hard to accept homosexuals in Jewish communities, and also kind of leave off on the question of whether therapy um, to change one's orientation is effective, say, like, we're not going to go down that road, People don't want to. We don't force them. We, we kind of are. It remains somewhat agnostic about that. Okay. So this is kind of like branch number. This is branch B of what we're looking at so far. Um, 
another thing to just point out about this is so far what we've seen are approaches that treat um, the existence of homosexuality, you know, affirming that it exists, but treating it as a kind of emergency situation. We have a problem, like there are these people who are in a huge amount of pain. And it's that pain which motivates the solution as opposed to any kind of affirmation of like, uh, by a queer Jew of like, I have a lifestyle that I leave that I'm happy in, that uh, gives me great joy, it gives me love. Um, that is not affirmed in these things. This is, this is motivated by a desire to um, not see Jews in pain. Okay. So we're looking for something more than this. Um, and what we're looking for is, is a branch C. Um, branch C is to say these tendencies are not pathological. They're not kind of peripheral to a majority heterosexual community. Um, but rather, they exist as socially viable as being an alternative um, to the majority heteronormative community. Um, and it's that approach which I I suspect, I'm not sure, I suspect many of us in the room are, um, are coming from. Um, and so that's the approach we kind of need to go from if we're going to think about, well, how do we reconcile Judaism and homosexuality, or halakha and homosexuality. Um, so again, if we take this approach, we have a few choices. We have three basic ways of doing this. One way is to say, okay, we, we accept this kind of fleshed out image of what queerness is. Um, Nonetheless, Torah overrides it, um, even knowing all this, even knowing all this. Um, one kind of minor approach is Shmuley Boteach, who's an Orthodox rabbi, I was surprised to find this, but um, I think goes in this category, where he says in page number four in source number six, um, <coughs> essentially, or I'll just read it, the mistake of so many well-meaning people of faith is to believe that homosexuality is amoral rather than a religious sin. A moral sin involves injury to an innocent party, but who is being harmed when two unattached consenting adults are in a relationship? Rather, homosexuality is akin to the prohibition of lighting fire on Shabbat or eating bread during Passover. There is nothing immoral about it, but it violates the divine law. So again, reaffirming that this is not permissible, nonetheless saying like there's no, uh, there's no value lying behind Torah's prohibition. And he's saying this, I think, partially because he does recognize that um, there, there is this thing called queerness that um, the Torah could not possibly be um, advocating against. Um, nonetheless, just on a strictly halakhic level, he rejects it. Um, this is also the approach taken by Joel Roth, right, by Joel Roth, who is a, a very prominent leader in the conservative community, um, who wrote a version of this um, before the 1990 conservative piece, which I showed you, and then updated it in 2006. Um, in 2006, the conservative movement kind of revisited the question about whether um, rabbinical students who identify as um, gay or lesbian can be admitted to rabbinical school. Um, and so in doing so, they, uh, the official lawmaking body met, um, and several resolutions came out of that. Some of them passed, some of them didn't. Some of them didn't. The ones that passed um, were actually mutually conflicting. Um, and this is one of those mutually conflicting responses. So this is the response saying, it's still not okay. And so Joel Roth says in source number seven, therefore I state with all the clarity that I can, the prohibitions against sexual uh, behavior between members of the same sex stand and apply irrespective of the ability to change the people who are homosexuals or to modify their attractions or behaviors. This in no way denies that scientific advances and evidence are often important data in halakhic decision making, but they can be relevant only when the halakhic conclusions are directly linked to the purported scientific facts. In our case though, 
that prohibitions are not prohibited because the people who engage in these prohibited acts, actions could be cured of the same sex attractions or their sexual desires or fantasies. They're prohibited even if all or any change is impossible. Thus, any scientific evidence as to their unchangeability is irrelevant to the halachic deliberation of this issue, though scientific evidence may well be admissible in other deliberations of halachic issues. And he says later on in the piece why he thinks this is so important. What is at stake here for me, and I believe for the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards as a body, is whether the law committee can continue to be seen as a halachic decision-making body. Right? So like, this is the ball game. You cannot possibly say that um, um, queer Jews can be accepted to be uh, in rabbinical school and thus to be rabbis um, and still say that you are a halacha decision-making body. That simply breaks halacha as such. Um, for all the breadth I believe that there is for pluralism within halacha, some decisions are outside those boundaries. If we make such a decision, we are no longer legitimate halachists. We undermine our authority as the interpreters of God's will and we render the law community halachically irrelevant. Great. Well, not great, but um, <laughs> this is the approach. Um, so again, this this does solve. You know, he he does believe that on a institutional level, um, queer Jews should be treated the same as um, heterosexual Jews. Um, but on a legal level, he doesn't think there's anything to do about it. Um, and this comes from his approach to halacha that he does not believe that you can do anything with the sources as they stand. Um, the, the sources in Vaikra, starting from Vaikra, to say, like, this is not acceptable. Yeah? Does this extend to, like, Aliyah and things like that? Uh, for him? So, on an institutional level, I think he would say, that, you know, it's fine to, um, for queer Jews to get Aliyahs, although, in general, uh, these are often questions that are left to individual rabbis, so it's like, they may um, give queer Jews Aliyahs, but do not need to. Um, but any kind of um, marriage ceremony, for example, would be totally out of the question. I didn't realize that Aliyah were an institutional um, problem. Are, are those institutional problems that you talked about consciously institutional, or are they are they thought of more as legal by the people who who I guess put them forward? So I think for the conservative movement, um, it is an institutional question. I think like there's there is a legal question behind it. Um, the question would be something like you know. Can you um, give a suspected sinner an aliyah? Um, yeah. So I mean, so there is there is both of that behind it. Um, okay, I thought that was a legal question, but right. it's an ins oh, that is right. So it's a, it's, okay. a, it's a legal question in the sense that um, in the sense that you can ask whether a sinner can get an aliyah, and like you know, you, we, we people who are mechalal shabbat who violate shabbat get aliyah all the time. So mm -hmm. that um, I think is a more minor question from this perspective. Meaning, like there are all kinds of prohibitions that people violate and still get aliyot. Even so, um, should they get uh, aliyot in a conservative synagogue? For an orthodox community, I think it's a more pressing question because often for an orthodox community, there is no um, assumption that people are regular, regularly breaking halachot. There's an assumption that people are keeping them. Um, and there, the, um, the Natty Health Gods, Rabbi Natty Health Gods um, piece speaks specifically to that, saying like, we'll leave it up to communities, whether they want it, whether they want to allow us. So we're still not there. Um, the other perspective, the kind of diametrically opposed to this, is to say um, not that Torah overrides queerness, but that queerness overrides Torah. Um, this is another position that was taken up by the 
um, conservative committee in 2006, but ultimately it was rejected. It didn't get enough votes to pass. Um, and this was a position put forward by Rabbi Gordon Tucker in his response, which is very long and, and very, uh, very beautiful, actually. Um, and he says, essentially, um, let's, let's see which part of this we want to read. Um, it's kind of long. Um, let's read the last two paragraphs, starting on page six. He says, I repeat, this is a moment of opportunity for conservative Judaism, in which we can demonstrate the power of our commitment and our compassion, in which our concept of law can be expanded and not retracted, right? So I think that's like kind of a, 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 buzz, a buzz phrase, right? That the concept of law um, is in some way affected by this approach towards homosexuality, um, and in which we can light lamps for the multitude. For it is not just gays and lesbians whom we address here, but our wider community as well. We have the capacity to create a truly exciting and engaging moment in the history of halakhic practice. So he sees this um, as monumental, as does Rabbi Joel Roth. Like this is like clearly like a very important um, historic moment. But says this is a moment to kind of expand halacha, and what he, what he really means by expand halacha is that we do not um, we do not treat these two verses in Leviticus as being operable at the moment. We maintain that we are committed to halacha in general, but these particular sentences not. And he says this in the last paragraph. We think we hear the verses in Leviticus uh, 18.22 and 2013 questioning us as to why we do not faithfully implement their clear vision of what God desires of us. Let us remind them and ourselves that the journey of soul searching and the understanding of religious mandates that those two little verses have produced for us will have more than justified their existence and perhaps even some of the pain they once caused. And the words are reversed here. Jerosh v'kabel schar, that is... Um, expound upon it and receive reward. It is sometimes the demanding struggle and not mere obedience that generates the most enduring reward. And those particular, that phrase is important because uh, that's a phrase which comes up in the context of the Ben Sora Moreh, um, the rebellious child who biblically is stoned, but the rabbi is basically legislated out of existence. So this is his way of saying, we're, are, we are in a way legislating the ban on homosexual sex out of existence. So what's the point of those verses? Well, we learn something along the way, to, to put it kind of like glibly. Um, so this is very clearly like, right, our, our understanding of queerness uh, in a way abrogates uh, these two verses in the Torah, although it doesn't abrogate uh, halacha in general. Okay, questions about this? This is a pretty radical uh, take. So what do you think about this bridge? I didn't ask you what you have about the other approaches. What do you think about this bridge? I think it's really interesting that he that he used the Drosh Um The I guess the response that could be given given to him is why wouldn't we do that with everything that is like painful or difficult for us to observe? Um, but it is interesting that in previous times there was enough wiggle room to say that about Bensor or Mora. But um, yeah, I. I think that's, I think that is good because it is leaning on precedent, um, and it makes sense to me. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> so it's not so clear to me what he is relying on um, in order to 
in order to affect this kind of halachic change. And I, so I was reading the paragraph right before, which I wonder might be more illuminating. Can I read it out loud? Sure. Okay. This is therefore, so this is the paragraph before David Sweet started reading. This is therefore not just a chuvah about Jewish gays and lesbians. It is also not a plan for dismantling the normal and norm, normative methods of doing halakha. It is rather a plea that our toolbox not be so circumscribed that we are unable to see that hard cases can call out to us to listen courageously to our hitherto orphaned agudic texts. Although we continue to believe that God speaks to us through halakha, the compassion of God that we are commanded to imitate is still greater than any particular halakhic method. And if courageous innovation in law in order to pursue imitatio Dei unsettles or even frightens us, we do well to remember that religion is, in the end, still about faith. Communities of faith provide stability and fealty to the past in the midst of change. So is he relying on certain, is he relying on any text, or is it just the general value of compassion? I think it's the latter, right? So I, I think part of this is, is to admit that if we look strictly at the halakhic material available, we are not going to find any basis for abrogating these verses. Nonetheless, from our broader understanding of what halakha is all about, and that's what I think he's getting to when he talks about the text, about these narrative texts, um, we can understand that halakha, um, outside of simply the plain meaning of the laws, couldn't support this. Couldn't support this. And so if we kind of expand uh, what we consider to be an appropriate halakhic argument, we can abrogate these two texts, but it does require that ex like an expanded toolbox, as he says. Okay. Um, just to go back to something Eliana said before, a lot of the approaches we've seen, in fact, I think all the approaches we've seen so far, come from the perspective that this is an emergency situation, and this one does as well, right? Like, the, the, what is motivating this expanded toolbox, um, this kind of reevaluation of the way we do halakha in the first place, the fact that this is such a pressing and difficult issue, it's a hard case, as he says. Um, Anything that's worth thinking about this in terms of like, um, do we want to think about um, homosexuals in our community as being part of like this difficult kind of boundary case, this, this part of halakha that's right at the very edge, like that really just stretches the way we think about halakha um, in order to accommodate them? Um, or would we rather find a solution that um, is not so outlandish or extreme in comparison to the other kinds of halakhic answers we provide. And I think it's not just an academic question, it's important in terms of the credibility of these, because what we're talking about is not simply that an answer exists, but an answer exists that is actually satisfying to like large numbers of people um, and can help uh, all kinds of Jews feel comfortable um, with the presence of homosexual relationships in the community. Um, it also just, uh, to point out something about this, and this is true about some of the other answers we'll see, is even if um, we do kind of uh, abrogate these two verses, we still don't have any sense of, well, so then what does the Torah think about homosexuals and homosexual activity? What does it think about gay marriage? Does it think that there is an obligation to adopt? Um, does it see any kind of restrictions? What does it think about um, lesbians in a relationship? What does it think about Nida in terms of them? Like, there's, no, there's nowhere to go. All it is is simply getting rid of a prohibition without providing any framework. And I think because of the way the argument is, because the argument comes from this place of compassion, by definition, it can't say anything more. All it can say is, we think this is okay now. But it can't say, it can't provide any kind of rubric for these kind of relationships and, and this kind of lifestyle. And I think um, we're looking for something more than that. Um, 
Okay, more questions about this one? Great, now we're getting to, I think, like the heart of it. Um, so we've seen two approaches, one, that Torah must override queerness, the other, that queerness must override Torah, and now I wanna take you through a number of sources which say, well, what if Torah and queerness aren't at odds, or aren't necessarily at odds, um, and that you can actually accommodate both in the same answer? Um, so another one of the chuvot that was given, one of the responses that was given at the same conservative uh, committee takes this approach, um, and this is just the conclusion of it by rabbis Dorf, Nevins, and Reisner. And so they say, um, more or less, taking the same attitude as Rabbi Nari Halfgott and the conservative movement for, um, circa 1990, that kavod ha the honor for, uh, for human beings, this respect of human beings, not only does it mean that socially we have to treat um, all kinds of Jews the same, but halakhically means that we have to treat all kinds of Jews the same as well. So they just take the same argument, but move it into a legal realm. And so they say, at the bottom of page six, the explicit ban on anal sex between, sorry, I'll start actually before that. Based on our study of halakhic precedents regarding both sexual norms and human dignity, we reach the following conclusions. The explicit biblical ban on anal sex between men remains in effect. So they actually don't take that away. Gay men are instructed to refrain from anal sex. Heterosexual marriage between two Jews remains the halakhic ideal. Homosexuals who are incapable of maintaining hetero heterosexual relationship, the rabbinic prohibitions that have been associated with other gay and lesbian intimate acts are superseded based upon the Talmudic principle of kavod hebriot, our obligation to preserve the human dignity of all people. And so it goes on to expand on what that will mean for the conservative community. Um, but that's the, that's the heart of the argument, um, to take kavod hebriot as, uh, as this legal power that allows us to... Um, in a way, override the other legal concern about the ban on um, homosexual sex. Okay, how do you take this? How do you, what do you think about this one? I have like a really big issue with just that one line there for homosexuals who are incapable of maintaining a heterosexual relationship. Because that's, I don't know, like how does, who determines that? What does that even mean? Yeah, exactly. Because like I kind of want to just ignore that one. I mean, doesn't 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 being homosexual by definition mean being incapable of maintaining a heterosexual relationship? Because it also it implies that there's something wrong with these people that they that they should be able to be in a heterosexual relationship, but like they struggle, they have uh, some type of disability where they can't, so they're forced to be in a homosexual relationship. Like it's a very negatively written line. Great. So I, I think it's important that you're all picking up on this, that there is <coughs> still negativity uh, that goes along with it, and I think that fits in with the fact that the argument is based on Kavod meaning it's like the, the branch B we looked at before is, is in a sense coming from this place of um, th this, is not, this is not the ideal. Um, it doesn't, uh, the reason I put it in this category is because I think the, it does allow for um, the possibility, and I think it like, expect, expects to see um, gay marriages, um, and so it, it allows for the possibility of such a lifestyle, but it certainly does phrase it as terms of like, well, the, the, the goal is uh, heteronormativity, but if that's impossible, then go somewhere else. Um, so thank you for picking up on that. Um, going back to the first, the, the problems we had at the beginning, right? That we had the, the problem of the social problem, the legal problem, the institutional problem, and the theological problem. So this solves the social problem, it solves the legal problem, it solves the institutional problem. But it doesn't really solve any theological problem, meaning, yes, we can use the 
halachic tools at our disposal to say that one of these halachic uh, institutions, kavodah briot, can override another one. But it doesn't speak to, well, why is this in, there in the first place? Why does the Torah say something like this? Why would God say something like this? Um, and so on a practical level, it solves most of the problems, although, just, just to be clear, it still thinks that anal sex is prohibited, um, which, just personally, I'm not really sure what to do with. I'm not sure what it means to prohibit an activity, which will basically always go un- unsupervised. Um, I think perhaps oh, from a dumb. technical perspective, they, uh, they have to say this, but... Um, what, what, be yeah. more specific here. Yeah, so what I mean is, there's something I think a little bit troubling about saying that um, the only thing that is still prohibited is something which is going to be totally unsupervised by rabbis or anybody else. You're right, it's totally un- unenforceable. Well, I don't, I'm, not, I'm rather confused. I mean, the, 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 all of the laws of Nida are not public. Are things that go on in private and are, are not really publicly enforceable. Right, so that's I'm not, true. I'm not seeing, as much as I don't accept this particular stance on the issue, I, I, I'm not really understanding your, your point of confusion. Right, the, I think it's a good comparison. And you're the only ones that compare Nida with um, prohibitions on anal sex. I think what I'm troubled by, and perhaps this is just me who's troubled by this, but is reducing a general ban on homosexual acts and allowing for homosexual marriage, but still saying that anal sex is prohibited. Meaning to take it from something which actually is quite enforceable and saying, well, it's still prohibited, but in, in an unenforceable way. Um, seems a little bit uh, disingenuous. Um, that might just be me. It might be that you know they're they are saying this in good faith. Um, it, it seems to me a little bit tenuous, but um, yeah. Sorry, I don't want to um, go like cause a big problem if everyone else understood. But I didn't see how this source fixed the legal problem because number four says that we are not prepared to rule upon the halakhic status of gay and lesbian relationships, and then goes on to say that this responsum does not provide for kiddushin for same-sex couples. Right, so, like it didn't resolve. Right, so it doesn't, it doesn't say that, it, I think it allows for it. I think, uh, in general, the conservative movement at this point is not, has not yet constructed its own policies for such relationships. So this was, well, this was in the context of um, yeah. barring um, ordination um, okay. So, so it's mostly the institutional. Right. But the fact that it talks about that and it talks about that as a possibility, I think, is to say, you know, we're, that will be a conversation for a later time. Um, and presumably also, and, and maybe this is not the case. Maybe the, they actually, the authors of this do not think this is a good thing. They don't think that um, gay marriage should be allowed or performed by um, conservative rabbis. I think, I think reading between the lines what they're saying here is, and that will be the next conversation that we have to have. Um, did you have a question? I thought the conservative one had actually published a, fr- a, fr- a, a framework for same-sex marriage, although I'm not calling it. Right, so it's since, it's since done that, yeah, as well. Right. right, so this is all, I mean, it's all very recent. Um, in the new conservative uh, guide, The Observant Life, they actually are still, it says like explicitly, like, we haven't figured this all out yet, like, we're still in the process of figuring this out. Um, okay, so we're still looking for a theological answer. Um, the second, actually, you know, I'm gonna, we'll skip uh, Rabbi C. Greenberg for a minute, and we're going to go to um, Rabbi Amaran Scalar. Um, so this is another one of these shuvot that came out of the um, 
this committee. And it takes a different perspective. And actually, we can read just the very end of it, I think it sums it up nicely. In the last paragraph on page 8, in traditional midrashic parlance, we might express our argument as follows. It's a charlotishkav toivahi. Matailotishkav bizman shetoivahi. That is to say, do not lie with a man. It is an abomination. When does the prohibition apply? When it is considered an abomination. However, when societal perceptions have changed and homosexual relations are no longer considered abominations, the prohibition disappears. So this, in a sense, kind of really goes right back to the start of this and says, um, instead of understanding the toiva as being the, the Torah saying to us, we should all understand homosexual sex as being an abomination, the Torah is instead telling us it's contingent. Only when homosexual sex is considered to be an abomination is there a problem. But now that we do not understand homosexual sex to be a toiva, it's no longer a problem. Um, what do you think about this one? And therefore, um, as we said, like it's, it's so it's, it should no longer be prohibited, anal sex or otherwise. It's all it's all permissible. Yeah, I, I like what they're trying to do. I'm just wondering this type of construction with toivahi, is it ever understood in any other place like contingent? Because I don't know, just grammatically, that doesn't seem to. As much as I like it, I don't know if that's how the Hebrew works. Right. Um, there are certainly psukim in the Torah that are read by Midrash in totally outlandish ways, and those outlandish ways become halacha. Um, is, he, is he admitting here that he's kind of changing how we normally read such construction? He's admitting it, but he thinks that it's viable. Right. No, I, I like what he's trying to do, right. but it's just, no, it's, it's not how, it's not exactly what it says. Great. But, yeah, it's more interesting. I was just going to say, I think it's no more ridiculous or far-fetched than many other ways that there, there's precedent for reading um, Sukhim in this way. Right, and so, I mean, and they're aware of the fact that they are mimicking a Midrashic model. Um, the Midrash does this all the time. Um, the question is, can conservative rabbis in 2006 do this? Um, and there, I'm not sure that they can. Um, I'm not sure that the, the ways that we are able to read texts, and especially the Torah, are identical um, for Midrash and for us nowadays. Um, and I don't just mean that um, from any kind of ideological standpoint of what I think the Midrash can do versus what I think the rabbis do. I, I think it's not going to be convincing. Um, it seems a lot like a trick, um, or kind of like this nice quick move that reverses 2,000 years or more of Jewish history by rereading it. Yeah. Um, I have to leave it in a minute, but I have a question. Mm -hmm to ask that's um, a little bit graphic, so bear with me, but has there been any kind of any kind of truths or any kind of discussion of whether there would be some way around or some kind of exception to the prohibition if there's a barrier in between, like for say like condoms or things like that? Like I don't know if there I'm just wondering if anyone has like addressed that or like modern ways of engaging in sexual activity that it also seems like kind of like a rabbinic kind of like, well, it means this, but if you have this, right. kind of, I was just wondering if you know. Yeah, I think it's a good question. I don't know. Um, of course, you would come up with a different question about uh, wasting semen. Um, mm -hmm. So I think either way you have a problem, but then perhaps you could say that that is a lesser problem than the issue of, of anal sex. Um, but I think it's a good question. I should find out for you. Okay, thank you for asking. Um, 
just to go on with this a little bit more, I'm not sure, just as we've seen from previous answers, that this solves any theological problem. Right? This does solve a legal problem. It solves the practical problem of what do you do nowadays. But in terms of, the, like, in terms of what do we understand the Torah as doing by originally writing this statement, um, I'm not sure, unless we really buy this as being the authentic meaning of the text, and I think we understand this as not being the authentic meaning of the text. This is a way of rereading the text. So we still have the question about, well, what was the Torah thinking in the first place? Okay. Um, so we're still, we're still searching. Bear with me. Um, we have a couple more answers to look at. Um, one answer, um, and this isn't on the sheet, is provided um, by, or I've heard it given by Rabbi Ethan Tucker. Um, and she um, connects the issue of homosexual sex with uh, the issue of left-handedness in Jewish law. Um, and this is the way to think about it. There are lots of areas of halakha which assume that the population is right-handed for various activities. I'll give you an example. Lulav and etro, right? Um, so you hold the lulav in the right hand. Why? Because there's three species, so there's more of them, and your right hand's better, so you put it in your right hand. Great. Um, the question is, Given that the Torah doesn't say, or these later rabbinic sources don't say, in brackets, but if you are left-handed, then clearly you would do it some other way, can you understand that to be kind of assumed in the sources? And there are rabbinic sources, in reference to handedness, who say, yes, that source was speaking about right-handed people. But of course, left-handed people should just flip things and should do things differently. Um, and so you can think about homosexual sex in the same way, meaning when the Torah talks about um, a ban on homosexual sex, it is speaking to heterosexuals. Um, they are expected to not sleep with others of the same gender. However, for left-handed people, quote unquote, the rules are different. And we are supposed to understand that that is understood um, in these texts, that the rules are different. Um, I think this is a helpful solution in that it gets to, um, it actually gives us something to go with, meaning like the Torah then would, is, does say something about homosexuals. It doesn't say something explicitly, but it's hidden in there. Just like every statement about what right-handed people should do hides a statement about what left-handed people should do. So that is helpful in that it gives us a sense of, you know, I think for, uh, for queer Jews, you can then locate yourself in the tradition. Um, I'm not sure, however, whether the analogy works, partially because I think right-handed, left-handed is a little bit more simple than um, heterosexual versus homosexual. Uh, there's a lot of the Torah which is based around, and a lot of social expectations which are based around um, heterosexuality and a heteronormative society. So I think I'm not sure that it's as, it's as simple to simply say, well, you know, this thing, and, and of course, homosexuals should like, you know, just draw in um, a mirror image of home, of heterosexual society. Um, you know, I mean, just as like a very clear, clear example, like let's say you talk about Shomer Nagia, about um, men and women should not touch each other. Um, how do you transform that for homosexuals? Um, again, living in a heterosexual society, in majority heterosexual society, um, it becomes a little bit more complicated. How do you talk about modes of dress? How do you talk about machitza? And I think like, these are questions probably you've thought of at some point as well. Um, so I'm not sure that I'm totally satisfied with it. Um, I want to take you to another answer and then a modification of that answer, which is my own answer. Um, and so the answer I want to take you to is Rabbi Stephen Greenberg, who came to speak here a few weeks ago. Um, and he gave um, 
a version of this argument as well, which is to say, when the Torah talks about um, a ban on homosexual sex, what it is really talking about is uh, a few other things that it would like to ban, or that it would like to, uh, a few other behaviors that it would like to control. Um, and if you see on the bottom of page seven, the last line, he gives these rationales where he says, rationale of reproduction, right? So why have a ban on homosexual sex? Because it doesn't lead to kids, because we value societies with kids. The law prohibits the form of sexual expression that by definition cannot produce a child. Social disruption. The law prevents husbands from abandoning their wives for sexual adventure with men. Category confusion. The law prohibits a form of sexual intercourse that confounds the categories of maleness and femaleness. And the rationale of humiliation and violence, the law prohibits a form of sexual uh, expression that is, by definition, driven by power, control, and domination. Um, and this is, and this is often true in the ancient world, that um, homosexual partners were often not um, on the same plane, um, that there is the penetrator and the penetrated, um, and so the Torah is not interested in such forms of sexual congress. Uh, I think there should be kind of equality there. Okay, so he, going with these statements, says, and, and speaking, I think, as an Orthodox rabbi, which is important for this as well, um, we need to demystify this rule. We can't just say, you know, it's just, it's not allowed for whatever reason. We have to think about why. He puts forward these four, and I think they're, they're fairly good. There might be other ones that, um, historically, you could say are also behind this. Um, but because homosexual sex is prohibited in the Torah for these reasons, we can imagine that in a society where we can kind of circumvent these reasons, uh, where these reasons are no longer applicable for many reasons, perhaps, you know, for reproduction, for example, because homosexual couples can adopt, or because there was actually a good basis in the Gemara for fulfilling puruvu um, to have kids, that puruvu can be done through other means, by supporting Torah, for example. There are rabbis in the Gemara who do this. So we can say, well, there are ways around these, and because we can get around all the reasons that are behind this rule, um, we can therefore say that homosexual sex, and furthermore, although I don't know how far he would go with this, um, homosexual relationships are now allowable. Um, so what do you think about this way of approaching the problem? Does it satisfy the, the four? So we talked about a legal question, a social question, a uh, institutional question, and a theological question. Does it solve all the questions? Well, I mean, these are these are uh, these are these seem like important questions to raise. And, and well, what's sort of problematic here, though, is there are a lot of things that you know we, we do, even though the sort of the original rationale behind them no longer really applies. You, know, you, could, you, could, you could probably take the same kind of analysis and apply it to say eating milk with meat. Right, okay. Um, right, so why, why perform this kind of complicated operation of finding reasons specifically for the issue of homosexual sex, but not for other uh, mitzvot in the Torah? Okay, great. I think it's really difficult to solve the theological question, and I'm not sure. I think, I don't, I don't think that this solves um, that last problem because I was kind of thinking about it going off of the of Rabbi Tucker's response into this one that that his that Rabbi Tucker's response is fine but it doesn't 
I think there's still a major theological problem that then you have to assume that the whole Torah is speaking to the heterosexual male, which it probably is. But I think that like that that's then still a really big theological problem for anyone who isn't that person that then God isn't like interacting with them. And and I think that that problem translates into this with, um, I guess I was thinking mostly rationale two is where I saw that fitting in, like that it's really for heterosexual married men. And, and I just, I, I guess like, I kind of see it applying to the rest of them too. I think it, I think it fixes the first three problems, but the fourth one will still be there. Right. Um, so I think, sorry, other other questions. Mm -hmm. um, I think these are two important issues. One that Jr. raised, which is you're performing this on this particular, you're performing this complicated operation on this question. Why not other ones? And I think there, to reiterate something we said before, is. A lot of these responses come from a place that we're dealing with an emergency situation. Like, we have to deal with this. I think Robert Greenberg, in writing the book, I mean, he writes this explicitly, that, like, this comes from, like, a very personal place. Like, I need to find a solution for my life. I need to think about, I need to understand how I'm living my life as part of Torah, as part of Halakha. Um, and so he solves this problem, but doesn't... Um, with what Eliana was saying, doesn't really address the larger theological problems. And I think this is non-trivial. Again, like, he's writing to an Orthodox community. I think the book got somewhat of a mixed perception um, in the years since it's been written, partially because like, the, it requires um, theological backing, which isn't provided in this text. Um, the theological backing can't just speak about this one particular issue. It has to speak about, as Jara was saying, all halakha. How do we understand this in the context of all halakha? And so as a result of that, um, for a solution like this to work, you really need to incorporate it into a way of thinking about halakha that can accept arguments such as this. Um, so how do you do that? So I'd like to propose a kind of modification to his answer. I think I, I kind of like the reasons he's given. I think like that's helpful in thinking about there being reasons behind this. Um, but I'd like to think instead about homosexuality and homosexual sex in the Torah as a kind of shorthand for a number of different issues. Meaning, when we think about what it means to write law or to create law, um, law creation is a kind of creative process in the sense that it is a process by which you attempt to put down in as few words, um, instructive words as possible, what kinds of behaviors in society you would like to see uh, abolished or curtailed in some way. Um, we can understand, and I think there's two ways of going about what I'm going to say next. We can understand the Torah as curtailing a number of behaviors that it seems it sees as inappropriate, like um, this question of reproduction, like uh, promoting reproduction, um, promoting um, relationships between husband and wives. Um, we can see it as trying to address all of these issues in one fell swoop by putting this prohibition on homosexual sex. How could it do that? Because the Torah does not understand a concept of queerness. And if you are in a society in which the notion of queerness does not exist, there is no good reason not to give a ban on homosexual sex. Meaning, if the Torah, and, but I think like the, the question there, and I think the difficult part of this is to say, well, what does it mean that the Torah doesn't recognize a concept of queerness? Does that mean God doesn't recognize a concept of queerness? Um, 
Or does it mean, which I think is troubling in another way, that the authors of the Torah as historical individuals did not recognize a concept of queerness? So I think whether you want to go down the route of biblical criticism or not, um, part of this answer has to be something to the effect of the, 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 the mind behind the Torah is not thinking about queerness as part of this picture. And neither were the rabbis who followed, basically up until the 20th century. And in the 20th century, now that we have this notion of queerness, this shorthand, which previously had been a reasonably good way of restricting a bunch of social behaviors which are difficult to restrict because they're so amorphous, that shorthand is now obsolete and in fact dangerous. Because that shorthand nowadays ends up actually attacking a community which it was never intended to attack, and attacking people that it was never intended to attack. Um, I like this answer, and maybe this is going to seem a little bit pompous, I like this answer because I think it's, it's correct. Meaning, I, I think it's, it's, it's accurate in the sense of, in the way it portrays history. Um, as we said at the beginning, the Torah does not ban homosexuality as such. It is banning homosexual acts. And I think if we understand the Torah in a historical sense, it is pretty easy to say, no, the Torah does not, is not thinking about, is not talking about um, homosexuals as such, as a community, as a biological phenomenon. It is simply talking about heterosexuality. And that is true as well for the rabbis. Like, this is what we know. And this is, in fact, often what we talk about when we say, now that we understand in the 20th century and the 21st century that things are different, that there is a biological homosexuality, um, as a result, this shorthand is no longer helpful. Um, so I like it from that respect. Um, because it, it, ultimately, I don't think an answer will work unless it's an answer which we can actually say, yeah, that makes sense. Like, I don't need a leap of faith to, to believe this is true. Like, it actually um, does make sense. But um, because we're running out of time, I want to stop there and just get your reactions. Thoughts about this? Is it thing? Yeah. Would you apply that method of shorthand to other halakhic areas? Great. So I think part of this, um, part of the ultimate goal in thinking about homosexuality, and this is why um, I'm treating this topic of homosexuality and halakha as part of a larger series of thinking about halakha is that it's important that we get away from a place of thinking about this as being like we have to do something drastic. We have to think about it in this in an emergency sense. I don't think that the, the argument that I've just given to you about this as being a shorthand is fundamentally different from the way we've talked about, say, the treatment of women in rabbinic literature um, or the treatment of other things which we'll talk about later on. Meaning, ultimately, we are always trying to understand why it is that, a, that certain values were applied given, given specific limited language in a particular historical context. And as we've done in the past, we are reading halakhic texts that are limited, that are practical, and trying to understand something larger, these larger amorphous ideas behind them. So in that sense, um, this is not a fundamentally different method. And I think that's important. Um, I think it's important that we be able to treat this without kind of breaking the rules by saying, well, this is different. Just, I'm, I'm, I, I, like, I like that answer. Just the, earlier in this series, we were talking about norms, forms, and values. So what about the forms category? What do we do with that? The forms, okay. So it's interesting. Usually we don't, have to, we don't end up thinking about forms of the Torah. We're usually talking about the forms of later rabbinic text. Um, so thinking about like what the form of the Torah is um, is an interesting question. 
One thing I think we can say based on the chapter in which these uh, injunctions appear is that they're very terse in general. Like they don't give us a lot of information about um, why it is that these things are prohibited. Um, it's understood to be, I mean, I mean, in these passages as well, it's understood to be part of the larger Jewish sexual mores, which the Torah is trying to, um, is trying to um, bring to the, the Jewish people. Um, so that would be the form. I, I think all I could say is, is that it's terse. I don't know that I can say anything beyond that. Maybe a Bible scholar would be able to say more than that. Um, in terms of the fact that it says that it's a toiva, I think I wouldn't read it like the response we read before. I would say, like, no, it means toiva. It's actually saying, like, this is an abominable act. You should understand this as such as well. Okay. Other thoughts about this? Other questions about this? Does this, does this work? Like, I, look, I genuinely want to know because. Um, like it's not a small question, obviously. Um, um, but the question of homosexuality and halacha or Judaism. Um, and it's important that we like, try to think about solutions that actually work for us in a practical way as opposed to saying, well, I don't really have a good solution, but you know, it's a struggle and I'll, and I'll find one later on in life. Um, there's only so many of these sessions which you're willing to come to. There's only, only, only so many talks on halacha and homosexuality which you're willing to come to um, before you get tired of it and just stop looking. Um, Another thing that I would say, uh, if there aren't any other questions, um, is that this answer aside, part of what it means to have this question stop being an emergency and start being a part of halacha is to move beyond the question of is or is not queerness um, allowable or homosexual act, acts, are those allowable? Move beyond that question. And think instead about the questions of, well, what does it mean to have um, gay marriage? What, like, what do homosexual relationships look like in practice? What are the rules that we want to set down for those based on the Torah? And in a way, kind of moving beyond the question of like the existence of this in halacha and getting into how do we sanctify these relationships as being part of the halachic system, in a way will, I think, help solve the first question more. Um, because it says that I th I th for well, for a number of reasons, but one is I think uh, there's a fear, like there's a fear of like not understanding what in practice like um, homosexual um, couples and their children as part of a community, not understanding what that will look like, not understanding how that works with halacha. And I think kind of like concretizing like what that actually looks like within halacha, um, in a way, will moot the question about how is this allowable in the first place. I think it'll won't entirely moot it, but. Um, it will certainly diminish the question as it becomes uh, a larger reality. Um, and I kind of look forward to the day when we can talk about this question about halacha and homosexuality in, this, in the context of other kinds of halachot and in, in, in the context of our understanding of halacha in general without having to kind of take it outside as being a separate ten, um, sensitive issue, but as actually being part of our general understanding of Allah. So, if there's no questions, thank you. <laughs>